Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Arnold Leitner. Arnold, how are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Glad to have you here. And it occurred to me before we, when I was setting up, actually, you may be, you're one of the people I've known the longest to be on this podcast because we met, I think it would have been in 2005, so almost 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I went to Columbia in 2004, and I don't know what year you started, but about that time, yes. Yeah, I was in the J term, so I started at 05. Okay, perfect, and yeah. And it was inevitable that we would meet because we both have PhDs in physics. We were both getting our MBAs at the same time, and there's not a lot of that combination. So I'm, and and now I think of you now as the founder of U Solar. I thought of you then as the founder of Sky Fuel, and you do a lot of work in solar. And I wonder if I I, I want to ask you about solar. Before that, I want to ask you about your journey from physics into business or f- physics and business. And then to talk about you, solar and, and personal leadership as well. Can we start with uh, bringing us up to speed of how did you go into physics and then how did you go from physics to an MBA? Yeah. You know, just now I was writing a bit how we developed a, a power block product for you, solar. And when I wrote this down, you just asked this question. I realized that the way I developed the product is kind of similar to how I ended up going through my education career, ended up becoming MBA. Um, the MBA or starting a business was the end game. That was the goal when I asked myself what I should do, you know, academically. And then I said, okay, I want to do these kind of certain things later in my life. What kind of education do I need to find to achieve that goal? So it was not like, oh, I go into physics because I love physics or, you know, I'm inspired by uh, you know, Richard Feynman or Albert Einstein. It was more, like, okay, I want to be able to build technology that impacts the world. I believe I need to be knowledgeable. I don't think you can do this as a high school dropout on average, on balance. So uh, what kind of background do I need to get uh, to be able to do this? And then I, um, you know, after I had established myself as, you know, after my physics career and made a transition there already to become an energy consultant uh, and made my name, we can talk about that more uh, with the U.S. Department of Energy, which ultimately resulted in an EB1 green card, you know, the extraordinary ability green card. But even that was not the end game. That that was a stepping stone to get going to business school. And just briefly jumping ahead to you, Sola, I didn't own any technology for what we ended up building a technology at, at you, Sola. It wasn't also that I had um, a particular product in mind. It was, other than that was, being, was going to be an energy product, but it was more like what type of product do we need to move it fast, to be able to work everywhere where there's sunshine, to be easy to service, to be easy to finance, and to find capital partners to ultimately build and hold the assets before they're being deployed. Once I had that sketched out, what that product should look like, then I went back and asked myself, what technology do I have to use to get there? In this specific case, we're talking about power electronics. And then I discovered, not to my surprise, that, well, that technology doesn't exist yet to deliver that kind of uh, product. So um, we cobbled a bit of it together from existing technology, but on balance, we had to build it. So coming back to the physics uh, PhD, very similar, right? I wanted to get somewhere. I wanted to be at a business school. I wanted to start a company. I wanted to make an impact in clean tech. And then I asked myself some 25 so more years ago, how do I get there? And how do I get there in a way that I want to arrive with the competency and in the role that I envision myself to be in 
decades down the road. So that's how I started studying physics. I have heard of people doing, like, I need to do X, and on the way I got to do Y to do there. Rarely is it a PhD in physics. That's not like a small thing. I would have thought you would go for a master's in engineering. This, t so I read a huge amount of passion to, if that's, if that's like the, the stepping stone. Yeah. I mean, you have a PhD in physics and everyone has a PhD in advanced sciences and any, any PhD and knows that unless you're committed to the work you're doing, you won't sustain. Uh, there are many people that want to get a PhD, but then kind of drop out or get corrupted, get a job and then move on and move off because it takes a certain amount of commitment. And uh, one thing that I think younger viewers should learn or those who have never had a PhD, the difficulty about the physics PhD, particularly chemistry or biology, where you test nature is you don't know the answer. And you, that's the whole point. And you don't know if the answer is yes or no. And usually if the answer is just no or a dud, it means you have to continue to find a research project or something that has a interesting and positive outcome, you know, in terms of academically uh, brings the worth far further. So you have to go into this with this uncertainty of how long this will take, uh, what you will end up finding. And, uh, you know, that's not for everyone. So if you're in that, you have to be completely passionate about the process, about being a graduate student, about, you know, the equipment you're managing and handling and building. And, you know, unfortunately, I was able to bring that and I've been able to continue bring that to all the work I do. I'm someone who gets up in the morning and just loves what I'm doing. And that's how I could do a physics PhD, even though it was a step in between, because while I was doing it, I just thoroughly enjoyed the process. Did you know at the time what the goal, it sounds like you knew you wanted to do something in an area, but you, you didn't know. I mean, you knew that some technology could be developed. Something didn't exist and you knew you could make it. Do I read that right? Uh, later, yes. As I got to specifically, as, uh, definitely as I got to use solar. Um, but if you ask me about the, the academic step, uh, let me say, say something um, that I hadn't mentioned. I did try to start working on uh, solar film them solar cells in Germany, um, but we lost funding in 1992, um, and then I moved to Boulder, Colorado, to continue that research, which was cadmium telluride thin film cells, which is now uh, the technology that built a billion dollar company uh, first solar. And then when I arrived in Boulder to continue this research at the National Renewable Energy Laboratories, again the money ran out there, and I you know couldn't start a doctoral program because you need funding. So I ended up working um, on a project completely unrelated to all of my interests, which was uh, ultra-low temperature uh, superconductors in two dimensions. Uh, so quite academic and quite far away. The point I'm trying to make is, I, as I noted earlier, I became absolutely passionate about that work and, and enjoying it and understanding the importance of and meaning of that. But then when I was done, my PhD advisor, a fantastic physicist, said to me, Arnold, I think um, it's time for a postdoc, right? There's something of that, you know, you're one of the best students, it's time for a postdoc. And I said to him, John, don't forget the one thing I told you when you first brought me on, I'm a hired gun. Um, so I, you know, I handed over my, my gun belt to the to the <laughs> sheriff and said, I, you know, I'm done. Uh, this, is, <clears throat> this is part of my plan. He couldn't believe it, but then he was kind enough to say, okay, Arnold, I got it. You came here for energy. You want to go back to energy. 
by the way, I think I have a job lead for you. So my PhD physics thesis advisor in ultra low temperature superconductors got me my first job, which was, or introduced me, which I did get hired, which was with a consulting firm in the energy, gas, and oil sector, which of course is the very opposite of what I wanted to do with energy. But this being an immigrant, having to meet your visa standards, you know, needing food on the table, um, I, uh, I said yes. And I thought, okay, you know, that's another step closer, right? At least it's in energy. And very happily, something happened soon afterwards, which of course brought me here. And I'm happy to tell you because it is so unbelievable in its story that, you know, it's, you can't make this up. And that's how I became a Department of Energy advisor on solar. If you're interested, we can touch on that. But that is, um, you know, the kind of, uh, path I took through the PhD program, through my advisor, coming to do solar, returning at least to energy after my PhD. Well, with the lead-in like that, I have to, yeah, please share. Is that before or after the MBA? That's before the MBA. Okay, so let's do that and then the MBA. Yeah, because, you know, I'm a, at that time still a, a, an immigrant on a J, what's that, J1, what's it? Uh, I think it's student visa F1, I believe. And it had an optional practical training program, which you had to qualify for, which this did qualify because it's close enough to physics. And uh, so here I was and looked at what I could contribute, you know, to this consultancy. And what happened is during the time uh, period, what we now refer to as independent power producers came on the scene. These were gas-fired power plants, predominantly, um, almost over overwhelmingly, a simple cycle and uh, gas turbines, but also something called combined cycle, where there's a, a steam tail attached to the gas turbine. And there wasn't really anyone tracking the development. There was a lack of data. So I ended up building, with the advice of mine, then uh, a boss, a database on these power plants, which was a hundreds of billions of dollar, in, billion of dollar industry that, you know, kind of got Wall Street all fired up. And so we delivered data to Wall Street uh, and all the competitors in this market. And it did very well. Uh, I made a lot of money for the firm, uh, you know, in the level of a consultancy, we did well, right? And I was a golden boy. I got a nice bonus, which I'd never received in my life for anything. And then um, after a while, I felt, well, you know, supporting that product, being a product manager was a database product with monthly releases. Uh, you know, think of it think of it like mini Bloomberg for power plants. And I said, well, I, that's not really what I was meant to do. And I told them, look, I, I would like to resign from that role. And they found someone else to take over. And I was pretty much unemployed within a consultancy, if you like, for a moment. and But I was, you know, I'd made a lot of money, so I was given a bit of slack and, and made, made myself useful here and there, uh, but still a little bit, you know, aimless. In that moment, this is the part that seems unbelievable. The U.S. Department of Energy representatives of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory on a idle summer day walked into our offices. We were in an annex uh, from the main firm where all the databases were in Boulder. And said they needed a study that showed that there was any merit to solar as an energy source for the United States. I may not have all the facts straight, but no one has ever corrected me. So I think I did hear it all correctly and put it all correctly together. According to the narrative at the time, that no one has disputed, so I think it's correct, is that the Office of Budget and Management had retained, uh, and this is not to put MIT down, but a number of MIT professors, and maybe this was Stanford, but regardless, some reputable professors who advised them that solar energy would never be cost competitive 
and therefore made a recommendation to the Office of Budget Management to strike an, the entire solar energy program at the U.S. Department of Energy, meaning all the consultants and all the employees at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Boulder. This is only the summer of 2001. This is May 2001. Think about it. We're only in 2023. Um, I just put my, you know, put my hat on it uh, in knowing that I was the person that could do something here. So they came to us because they figured we were not a green consultancy. We're like oil, gas, and power. Little did they know there was this guy in there that just, you know, had nothing to do. So I raised my hand and said, I'll, I'll write this study. I'll take this on. And that moment, I realized that I could give back to the country that's been so great to me. I really felt a sense of of gratitude, and I wanted to do something for the American people. And that's truly in my heart. But also, you know, uh, thought, okay, that's my chance to get back to solar, right? And lastly, I realized, you know, shortly uh, also that, well, I'm beholden, you know, as an employee of this company with my H-1B visa, but boy, maybe I can get a green card out of this one. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, all three things together, and I, I, I committed myself and the study, everyone can look it up on, online. It's called Fuel from the Sky. I became a landmark study uh, inside the U.S. Department of Energy, maintained the program according to those whose jobs I preserved and have thanked me many times at various conferences later down the road, telling me you can't believe you saved my job. Um, I don't want to take that much credit, but that's what they, how they felt. And, uh, yeah, and that, um, study pretty much, uh, laid the blueprint for the desert Southwest and contradicted all MIT professors telling them that they are wrong and that they were wrong because we know that, um, you know, we subsequently had beginning in 2008, um, a large scale development of solar in the desert Southwest. And that's, that's so incredible, um, you know, to myself, even that this came together and that I wrote the study and that, of course, then opened my path. Um, to business school because having that knowledge, I was back in solar. I was the consultant. I was pitching to the Western Governors Association, you know, the benefits of opening up the deserts uh, and pursuing this, writing, you know, laws that would help uh, development of solar plants. And then after I had done that part, you know, then there was the next step in my, in my journey. It was like, okay, now how do I get to build a company around this and be a contributor, which is always what I'd wanted to be. And that, you know, again, I was still a consultant in Boulder, you know, didn't have much money, didn't know anyone. Um, I needed to get somehow in front of people that have business, no business, and someone get access to money to launch this company. And that was my path to Columbia. Then. I don't know if this is the most important question, but I can't help asking, why did they get it wrong and you got it right? Did you have access to more information? Was it a different motivation? Were they being funded by sources that maybe didn't want that to happen? Or was it just you benefited from their research and could do more? I never read the research. I never saw what they recommended. And, <clears throat> you know, I think they're probably all collectively smarter than, than I. And I've never said that. And I know I'm not particularly smart. My kids beat me at Quirkle <laughs> any day. I've never won Quirkle and I've tried many times. It's a game similar to Domino's uh, for children. Um, that tells you something. Um, but I think what I was missing on their end was kind of putting it all together, visualizing it, right? They just looked only at cost and, and didn't, I, well, honestly, I don't know what they looked at because they never, I presume they only looked at cost. Uh, they didn't want to take leaps. Um, maybe they want to get it off their desk. I don't know. Maybe they just had a vested interest. Um, you know, 
it it takes some someone and something to see the future and see where things could be um and also stand up and say this is true uh, you know i i don't care if you tell me the catholic church and the entire vatican that the earth spins around the sun i know it's not true and i will not say anything differently and and you will be surprised how many people i'm not, I'm, I'm not referring to the mit professors here specifically will change the opinion or not say the opinion despite better knowledge because they want to fit in with what everyone else is saying. They actually doubt themselves. There's, they get up in the morning and say, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the earth doesn't rotate around the sun, even though they've probably seen it themselves. And I find it remarkable and I see it, still see it to the day. So you're playing it as a um, integrity and being humble to the science. Yes. To me, another big angle is that when people say what one person does doesn't matter, it's there's a lot of people can do a lot of little things that any of them don't look like they make a difference. And then I got a regular listeners to this podcast know that uh, a constitutional amendment on pollution is something very important to me. And so I've studied a lot about the 13th Amendment, how that passed, which mm -hmm. uh, banned slavery. And there was a brief moment at the end of the Civil War when uh, so many things happened to come together to make it possible to pass the most divisive thing in, in American history, slavery. Mm -hmm. We made a constitutional amendment that I'm not – I don't think anyone can win an election today campaigning on repealing the 13th Amendment. So it's become a great source of unity. And the number of things that people did that couldn't – that anyone would look at them and say that doesn't – what you do doesn't matter. What That thing is is pointless. And some of them didn't even live to see how their contribution contributed. And yet all of it, like the number of things that have to happen that everyone has to do. So when you're talking about all these people coming to you and saying, you saved my career, I mean, it's not just their careers. I mean, I, I guess like, is it, I don't want to overstate things, but maybe you, you really self uh, saved an industry, but it's just one person Yes, yes. And for everyone listening out there, I make lay no claim to be the father of solar in the United States um, or having, you know, maintained that department. There are other people that then, based on, you know, maybe a few things they read, made my report, made it important decision. We're in a position of, of leverage, right? And and they ultimately are the ones that should take credit and, and deserve the credit for maintaining the um, that department. But is a big question, and and for you and I, we're physicists. We know about you know infinitesimals, right? Uh, delta t, uh, you know, delta x over delta t, right? It's an infinitesimal um, step that ultimately integrates into a complete function, right? Or into a an, into an answer. Basically, the, the, as a physicist, you know that if little things don't change something, then nothing would change because that's kind of you know the entire algebra and, and everything that, you know, is invented to explain planetary motion. So in that sense, I'm a strong believer that, yes, you can do something. And it it's the only thing that matters is what you do. And at the same time, I look at the Keeling curve, which I have on my on my email that shows you that CO2 emissions continue to rise. And I don't see any dip in, uh, you know, 2002 when I published Fuel from the Sky, right? I have done contribute nothing, right, in that sense. I have not moved uh, the meter up or down. And that's true, I think, for all of us. 
you know, as a global entity. But if one person doesn't make a difference, nothing does. And so um, what needs to happen is that then one person is amplified and that ultimately, and this is the point you made about the 13th Amendment, there arrives at a t- tipping point, right, where enough people have the same idea and view and then suddenly something switches. And and that's, you know, there's no other role you can play in life and that's the role that I want to play. So let's come back to that after we bring us, get through the MBA and then starting you solar. Maybe if if I don't skip too many steps in between those two, please. What, what was the what was business school like for you after after the career in in science and engineering before that? Yes. So um, there's business school. I can can be divided my experience into into three parts really. Uh, the worst first one was when I was basically deconstructed, um, meaning that you know I didn't really have any understanding of knowledge and there's so many things so small things you need to know that uh you know if you if you don't know how to order um and speak only a few words of spanish it's hard to order anything in a restaurant even though even if you may be a chef from japan right uh, so similarly you know all the knowledge i had uh, from the physics department didn't really translate uh, much into a lot of things you have to do in the first year in business school so i got you know pretty much deconstructed in terms of where i had to start and what i had to you know do and learn and and understand, you know, the role I could play and how I could, you know, participate in the, in the classroom environment. Uh, but then, um, after the second year, uh, you know, I came back basically having learned, having been put through the ringer, uh, and of which I think business school does a little bit intentionally, like the Marine boot camp in the first year. I think they take some pride in that, unfortunately, or, or maybe rightfully so, uh, because it gets you, you know, think faster and act faster and work faster, which is really important to acquire as a skill. But then the second year, I started founding uh, Skyfuel. Uh, ultimately, I received an investment from Columbia's greenhouse program into the company to get me started. And also in the, in the third part, that was like the last trimester, if you like, if you could split it in three, um, you know, I pretty much caught up or leveled the field with my peers. I knew what, you know, an income statement was and I, you know, I had some idea of accounting and, you know, I found myself actually cruising for classes and being able to fully enjoy it. So there was really three elements. The one was where I kind of, you know, cut, put the ring here and had to reestablish, you know, what I know and what I needed to know and how I could, you know, find my bearing here. Then um, the second phase was like launching Usol at Columbia. I apologize, um, Skyfuel, the solar thermal company. And then the last part was really kind of enjoying it all. So that was my experience. And where I just learned and absorbed and, and, you know, my brain was wired now, could understand what I was being told and taught. So that was my experience at Columbia. Yeah, I got to comment on uh, the way – the word that I always use for – is humbling because I came in thinking like, oh, physics PhD. I know so much more than all of them. I was the CEO of a company. I know this. I didn't even make it through orientation before I was blown away at things. That I, I was like – there were things that I didn't even know why I didn't – like leadership, I didn't know what – I didn't know. I like even when I was there, I could, I was like, "What? The, what's going on? What, what is this?" And also, put the ringer of the first year—a word that you didn't say, but I, I bet you'd agree—is I did use the word. Yeah, I did use the word. Yes, humbling. And well, also um, teams. I, it forced me to rely on my the group that I was in, and that was also a great experience for me to. I had to rely on them. I couldn't do it on my own. I couldn't just be like, oh, you do yours, I'll do mine. And that was a big learning experience for me. 
yes, I think I forgot about that. And, and although I fondly remember my, uh, study mates, right? Or, or, or group project mates, group mates. I don't know what we called each other. Um, yeah, because the point is that you would not possibly be able to finish the course material and work through the assignments if you weren't working a team and you could rely on the other people in the team to, uh, pull their weight. And I'm, Initially, in the first year, you'll be being assigned uh, other people in your cl- in your group, and there can be a hit and miss. Um, it was kind of like so-so for me. In the second or third semester, you know, you're allowed to assemble your own teams, and you know, I ended up with a fantastic group of people that I picked, and they picked me, and and, and I think it was part of the of the sailing, the easy, much easier sailing later. Yeah, yeah. And business school also was the first environment, and maybe the most like this, where. You could walk up to anyone at any time and start talking and they wanted to talk back to you and people wanted to meet each other. It might not endure, but in many cases it would. And I just had no idea it could be like that. People just want to know each other. And I know if I've, well, it's been a long time since I've read Slashdot, but if I read like engineers talking about or science people talking about MBAs, they're always like, oh, they come in and lay people off. Well, I can't deny that there is that. There are people who do LBOs and, and do stuff like that. Yeah. But there's something that they're missing of – I guess something hit me also. This is before business school, but when I read Getting to Yes for the first time, mm-hmm. which I think probably almost every MBA reads at some point, and I recommend to everyone listening to this, that changed – like negotiation switched from being about winning to being about working with the other person and and or other people. And – yeah, business school changed a lot of my perspective. I had no idea what I was missing. I'm really glad I got that experience, even though a lot of people – I mean, there are definitely a lot of people who go through and they're like, okay, I worked for McKinsey as a, an intern in college and then I worked for them afterward and now I want to reach partner level. So you know, I just got to do what it takes to get to partner level. And maybe there isn't a lot of reflection on their part. I didn't interact with people like that, but I – everyone sounds like there's there's people like that out there. But – it was just a big growth learning experience for me. I, I share that and uh, I have a lot of respect for my classmates. And so what also um, is true, what you just noted, which I look back and ask myself, I do have quite a few professors that I'm or, or staff members of Columbia that are still in touch with me. And I wonder how that's possible because, you know, our class was what, a couple hundred, right? Um, and that's class coming every year. So I'm like, wow, you know, either they have a big Rolodex and they touch with a lot of people, or somehow I was different, right? And and hopefully maybe one thing that made different and why I endeared myself to them is maybe because I was so my eyes were wide open, right? I was like, you know, my God, you know, I just, all the stuff I can learn here and put to good use. And you know, someone who comes to McKinsey kind of does it as a rite of passage. Maybe it doesn't feel that way, or doesn't ex- you know come across that way, and doesn't exude that kind of energy. Maybe that's what you know people love to see as well. I mean, everyone loves to see someone who loves what they do and represent, right, as a teaching professor or as a staff member at Columbia. So, yeah, um, I, I share that uh, feeling with you. I had to kind of summon that feeling a little bit like, you know, um, you know, in the therapy session where I hadn't thought about it, but someone says a key word and all this wells up and comes up. But, yeah, I can I can relate uh, to everything you just said. Yeah, I guess we should mention that the reason we're on right now is that we ran into each other at a reunion, what was it, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Something like and- that, yeah. Yeah, so it was our first time seeing each other in a long time. And I'm sure for you as well, the first time seeing a bunch of people in a long time that we'd spent a lot of time with. It's overwhelming. What's even more overwhelming is, uh, you know, I, I, there's this thing about, I don't, I mean, you probably mentioned more, 
educated at this because you do these podcasts and you interact with more people than I do. But there's this difference between uh, knowing someone cognitively and knowing someone emotionally. And I came across quite a few people at the reunion that I couldn't put a word, a name to their body or what they did or even which cluster they were in or whether they're actually in my cluster or, or in, in the year in the program itself or whether it was overlapping. But I knew them. I knew them from the way they talked, from the way they moved their body. And I always find that really remarkable, right? And then you have the shared history. And of course, that recognition, that familiarity makes the conversation so easy to start because you kind of know that person, right? Uh, you may not remember anything about them, but that person is known to you. You kind of already know how they will react because emotionally they are familiar to you. I find that yeah. very, very nice experience. Yeah, the more expressive. I mean, talking about physics, you mentioned Feynman earlier and definitely Feynman. I mean, I never met him. I met people who did, who did meet him. I had a professor who, who met Einstein too, which was, I was like, wow, it's one degree of separation. Yeah. But most of my physics classmates weren't expressive. And so it didn't have that. I mean, they were definitely incredibly smart and talking to them about like, what does quantum mechanics mean and what's, how does relativity work? Those are mind bending and, and learning about nature, the beauty of nature. There's no substitute for that, but definitely the expressiveness and personalities that business school brought out. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I had it before. Um, and again, you know, this is a little bit tried Steve Jobs uh, commencement speech, uh, you know, where you can only uh, connect the dots looking back. Uh, but as I got to Columbia and also towards the end of my PhD, um, where I was, you know, for, you know, for my little research, still praised for the quality of my presentations. Um, you know, looking back, I realized, okay, there, there's something that has led me all the way to, you know, the way I communicate today. Um, you know, the value proposition of use solar, uh, there, you know, it's, but I agree with you. Um, the physics department is not a, a poetry group, you know? Um, yeah. So I hope I'm, I'm trying to think of this from the listener's perspective. Are they like these two old guys talking about this, something from the past? But let, let's jump to, uh, Maybe it's interesting. I hope it's interesting because it's certainly, to me, business school introduced me to leadership and mm. many other things, but leadership top. I don't know if you took Finer's class of leadership or, um. Yes, the finer, the finer, the finer points of leadership or something, right? That's yeah. A going, going joke in the hallway. Yeah. Is he one of the ones you, you've kept in touch? I've kept in touch with him. No, it's been a few years. No, I have kept in touch with one of our uh, corporate finance professors and with the greenhouse program professors. So, um, yeah, and so leadership is – you can learn social and emotional skills. You can change your identity deliberately with intent. And I had no idea that that could be done before. I, you know, If you'd asked me about leadership before business school, I'd say, well, Martin Luther King was born that way. I'm not. So I guess that rules that one out. And that's wrong. I mean, you, if, if you believe that, sure, you, you won't be able to get past where you are. But if you – work at it and and work at it and you have a, a i guess not just blindly it helps to have a structure but yeah you can learn to lead and sustainability desperately needs leadership now yes it does and going just going to the general point of leadership um see not all of our skills are lined in a perfect sequence to produce the ultimate executive you know, we have many executives that we celebrate that are pretty flawed. And admittedly, they themselves would admit it, and it's obvious looking at them. Uh, but they still built, you know, incredibly valuable products on important companies. So 
one point I like to put is not an excuse, but a little bit of forgiveness also uh, in the process with yourself that uh, if you're not a perfect leader, uh, recognize others aren't either. And they have built companies that look perfect on the outside and nonetheless, um, or despite or because of it, because they were not very imperfect. So, but going back to what you just said um, about leadership, uh, my focus was entirely on that. It was more on building my first company, you saw, and I started, you know, developing the product and traveling a bit towards the second, last, the term of the business school, basically. Um, but I'm learning and growing in terms of leadership more now, um, in the last 10 years, I would say, than I was earlier in business school. Because coming out of business school, I was going full steam, you know, I had raised this capital for this company, Sky Fuel, and I was out there pitching and, and, um, I, you know, I wasn't married, didn't have kids, didn't get, you know, humbled by that experience. I'm in a positive way, right? Of how, you know, how you be, have to be there, uh, emotionally present and the responsibility that comes with that. I didn't have that. I was single. Um, so today, um, I, I take, um, greater steps to understanding how to be a better leader for a team. I would just simplify that, that, which is different from being a leader on an issue. And I'm, I, I want to talk about, about that because that's something I think is easier for me. It's always been easier. Um, for most people, this, right? Uh, but being a leader of a team and improving that, I, I don't think I qualify for this podcast to focus on that. I think I'm too much of a work in progress and, and learning. Um, but, uh, if you want to, I'm happy to talk to about it nonetheless. But what I would really like to, uh, talk about if you're interested is more on leadership in terms of an issue. And I, I, I think I have some some thoughts and some views that I believe are powerful and meaningful. So if that's what you had in mind, um, I'd like to expand on that with a little bit of prodding from your end. Yeah, we kept get, we're getting we skipped so many things, and I wanted to get the I wanted to build up to some of that stuff. So I, I'm gonna let's get to that, which maybe in a second episode. Uh, do Skyfuel briefly, and then talk about you solar. Yeah, so Skyfuel. Um, was basically built again on how do you get a solution to meet a certain goal. And the goal was how to get carbon emissions out of the air, right? What can I do? And so um, I was I learned about parabolic trough technology, solar thermal technology, but I also had this background in power plants. And I recognized that there was a, a market of, of unused, this is a little technical, but there was unused, unused, underutilized steam turbine capacity in a lot of these combined cycle power plants that were built in the desert southwest. Okay, so there are power plants that had a steam tail, a portion that's run by waste heat from a turbine that from a temperature perspective matched the thermal energy of solar plants that were underutilized, that were surrounded by open land, which could accommodate solar collectors. And so my goal was to kind of provide um, that kind of heat integration into these combined cycle power plants. And to build that business, you know, I had to kind of um, built a corresponding technology or arrive at a corresponding technology. So that's what led me into, into Skyfuel. And then, of course, in doing this, I want to make sure that we build something that has some legs and sustainable in terms of financially sustainable or market sustainable, sustainable in the market. So I, you know, with my team, uh, or my CTO at the time, we created, uh, the uh, parabolic trough collector, which you can see online in many, many pictures called the Sky Trough. Uh, not the most clever of all names, but nonetheless, um, it is absolutely stunningly beautiful. It's built on a, on a rip structure, like a, like a canoe 
that then you, you put a canvas around it. And the canvas in this case was these relative, relatively thin aluminum sheets that were coated, uh, that had a mylar reflective silver film on top of them. And they would slide in and then take the, the shape, the structure as they're being inserted in these rib structures. And were more ac- optically more accurate um, than anything out there in the industry that was glass-based. Won an R&D 100 award. Uh, we're about to take the market by storm, if you like, you know, oh, Albuquerque, Denver-based company. And then three things happened. Um, fracking uh, came to the market and natural gas prices just plummeted, which is really, you know, the market we targeted, providing thermal energy to an underutilized thermal asset in the power plant that now could also just use gas in what's called a ducted burner. Um, again, if the re- listeners don't understand this, uh, not worth catching up on it. Uh, but the opportunity has faded and moved on, but uh, there was a real, real opportunity. But now gas could do it cheaper than solar thermal because gas price collapsed. Then we had, uh, uh, you know, a lot of Chinese supported company dumping, uh, as the time it was called and probably rightfully so low cost photovoltaics on the U.S. market. And then if that wasn't enough, we had the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which made it difficult to pivot the company from tracking solar thermal collectors to follow the sun to tracking photovoltaic collectors to follow the sun. And unfortunately, also didn't have a supportive board or the supportive investors to do all of that. And so um, even though we had won an R&D 100 award and really created a stunningly beautiful collector, and I think it would be around today even if these things hadn't happened. But that's what happens, right, in the world. Sometimes something punches through and breaks something. And that broke the entire um, solar thermal power business and ultimately the company was sold years after it left to a Chinese conglomerate that didn't take it any further. And they kind of withered away somewhere in some engineering drawer. So that was uh, Sky Fuel. Yeah, sadly, I think we would see parabolic trough collectors in the market still for certain applications um, because there are some inherent advantages over photovoltaic, particularly the thermal energy storage that's very, very cost effective. Um, but this is a much longer discussion. People will argue with me that I'm wrong about this and I'm not entirely accurate about my numbers. I might be off by a few percent, which might be all to kill a technology because once it comes to energy, price is the only thing that matters on the wholesale side of things. So, but yeah, that was my experience with, with Skyfield. We did enormously valuable work and successful work. And then these things came together and, you know, they, we couldn't withstand them all at the same time. I'm going to ask just one question about those. That when I think of PV, I think of something that requires a lot of fossil fuel to manufacture, and I think of yours probably wouldn't require a lot of fossil fuels to manufacture. Yeah. So this is the question of you know the embedded energy or you know that a product has. I think on balance, um, you know, for anyone out there who wants to change their life and think about life, I would say, the first approximation. The carbon consumption of anything you touch is proportional uh, to the price of the product, maybe with the exception of a you know, Matisse painting or a fungal painting uh, that's auctioned off. If you think about like a diamond, oh, no, no, diamond, not I mean, how can that be? Well, think about the gigatons of earth that need to be moved to find that one diamond. So therefore, the diamond is expensive because it takes an enormous amount of energy to get to it. Um, so on... Therefore, you know, the best way to, on a high level, um, compare, you know, embedded energy is just to ask yourself, what's the dollar per kilowatt hour of, of something, you know, that, um, produces a certain amount of energy, levelized cost of energy. And, you know, solar thermal and, and photovoltaic were, uh, more or less on par. And now today, uh, solar thermal, uh, solar, 
uh, photovoltaics. I kind of did a study on this, relying on some US. I did some analysis on this, relying on some US Department of Energy data, and uh, it turns out it's about a year and a half, something like this, eighteen months at you know the latitudes south of the northern US border, you know, to recover all the embedded energy in the photovoltaic cells. Uh, in, in, in the in the entire panel to you know to, to recover all its embedded CO two through zero energy production. So after eighteen months, you have paid for the carbon that costs it to make it, and and then subsequently, of course, you can expect this panel to easily run for twenty five. As a matter of fact, it's even guaranteed by the manufacturer for twenty five years. You can run thirty, probably fifty years. So you know, as a fifty x, and everyone who has ever done any exponentials knows that an exponential greater than one is you know is a runaway, and something that has a fifty x energy return is just gigantic. So, um, you know, you have this idea then of the solar breeder, you know, where a solar plant makes the solar panels that make the solar panels, and then you have an exponential runaway. So, um, yeah, the embedded energy in, in solar is a non-issue. It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a um, red herring that's being put out there sometimes to distract from the merits and virtues of, of solar power. Part of me wants to dive in, keep going there, but we're going to keep moving on to you solar. How long between... Skyfuel and you solar and what was what inspired you solar? Good, uh, that's an excellent question. So first of all, too long. Um, it took me about a year to uh, you know go through a, um, a re-education program, basically, um, and that's a personal re-education program. Program, but everyone needs to understand if you've not been doing something full throttle and and it just gets basically ripped out underneath your feet because. You know, you're leaving company and, and this is the energy industry you knew. It takes a while to lose that momentum, right? And then recalibrate and say, okay, you know, maybe there's something else. Um, but so it took me about a year, uh, admittedly too long. Uh, should have been smarter, but nonetheless, um, there's also an emotional part, right? To your body that has momentum as everyone knows, um, very, very well, especially in personal relationships. Um, we hang on much too long often. Um, but um, what led me to use solar was um, the realization that I knew pretty much everything there was to know about utility-scale solar. I really was an expert, and I continue to be, to some degree, an expert on that. Um, and I realized, okay, there's there's a fatal flaw in this, which is that we continue to produce the energy um, where uh, you know where we don't usually live, uh, and then also that um, it's not universal, right? It's not something that can work without the grid. And specifically, you know, utility-scale solar is utility solar, right? Um, so basically, my line is, you know, if the sun shines everywhere, why is all solar grid tied to the grid? Right? That's almost like a paradoxical. That's kind of the insight. Okay, so if that's crazy, what do we need to do to make that not crazy, That to disconnect those two things, to have solar energy that can work anywhere for anyone? and and be practical. And there's, 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 there are multiple steps of logic here where I think our folks from the MIT uh, professorship didn't quite walk it all the way down to the logical end of the path, which sometimes you need to do. Sometimes these paths end nowhere and it's a no-go, right? It's a bad idea. But sometimes you continue and you feel, find out, oh my God, this, become, this is becoming virtuous, right? Everything is just reinforcing the other idea. Um, and I get to that in a moment. But this case was, what was the missing element in energy? In solar, well, everyone would say it's it's energy storage, and that is true and important. Uh, you know, that's kind of like a that's a no-brainer. It's like the, if you have no sunshine, there's no no power. You have a little uh, battery-powered energy generator in your home, 
as we discussed before the call. Um, okay, but um, we don't call it an energy system. We call it a power system. We call it a power generation, not energy generation. So ultimately, in the very moment, I need power, right? I don't know. It doesn't help me that there's energy in the battery. It needs to come out as power. So what I recognized uh, with you, Solar, 10 years ago, uh, when I first thought about it, is that there's three miles, three last miles of this industry to energy independence or to an alternative form of utility-scale coal plants, if you may. The first one was independent energy generation on site, where that is solar and nothing beats solar in terms of um, you know, ease and reliability and, and, and form factor and everything. The second one was to store the energy. That's the second mile. All right, we got lithium-ion lithium batteries, and they changed the game. But lithium-ion batteries came with another attribute that most people don't fully recognize into this date, although when they drive a Tesla or any other EV they do, is enormous amount of power they can deliver sustainably over the entire discharge curve for the whole time. They just keep going. They're not like a lead-acid battery that kind of poops out after X many cranking uh, attempts uh, on a cold day. And that power is really the part that you need. You need to be able to start motors. You need to be able to drive heavy loads in order to have a practical off-grid system. And to stop here but make the point is most homes have a 200 ampere connection, which is measured at 240 volts. Most people think they get 120 volt delivered to the homes. No one does. You get uh, 240. It's then split um, in the home. Again, most people don't understand how it works, but trust me on it. So you multiply 100 amps times 24, 240, you get 24 kilowatt. Most homes have two times that. So most homes have a 48 kilowatt connection to the utility, guaranteed to whatever they want to do in the house. Turn on the heat pump, run, charge the car. And if you want to make any inroads in providing an alternative to utility power, that's the level we need to play at. And if you look at, you know, the device that you have in the desk, I think you told me you have like a 500 or 750 watt um, solar generator, that's obviously not going to cut it, right? For the kind of energy needs that sometimes we have, even if you try to be sustainable, right? We need to air condition our homes in, in Phoenix. Otherwise, you will not live. Uh, you know, we need to cook on induction stoves. We don't use gas. So we can reduce our overconsumptions. And I built one of the first passive houses in Germany that are extreme low energy. I was only 19 when I designed it. And my parents uh, uh, built it. Um, it's, it's a huge success. And it's now the building standard in Europe, basically in Germany, uh, the passive house design. Still, it consumes energy. And so um, at a lower level, but still does. So that was the observation. We needed to build high power devices. And then if you do high power devices that are local, it actually begins to transform the entire energy grid systems. And I'm happy to explain that. But that is really what led me to your solar inside that, okay, utility scale solar is nothing but utility scale solar, but the sun shines everywhere. That's absurd to limit it to that. Then to make it practical, what do you do and how do you get it um, at, into the customer's hands? And then there are a lot more steps, uh, you know, that downward virtuous path that you need to think ahead so that when you arrive where you want to go, that you can arrive where you want to go, that you don't get stalled out suddenly finding, okay, I didn't plan that step. And I hope and believe at Usola we thought it through all the way to the end. And right now, as far as I can tell, uh, that's just what is proving to be true. How do you describe the difference between energy and power? Because I think for a lot of people, those are synonyms. Yes, yes. And they're often used synonymously. 
So energy is um, the amount of work or heat uh, in a source of energy or a reservoir of energy can do. So, But it doesn't tell you how quickly it can provide that. So um, you can have, a, a say, a 10-kilowatt-hour battery, but it could deliver that power at 100 watts, which is the amount of energy per unit of time that can flow from that device. So, you know, you can't drive a car with that, although 10 kilowatt hours, you know, would take you 50 miles uh, in an energy-efficient car. So power is then um, how quickly that energy can be, you know, can leave the reservoir, can leave the tank or leave the battery. So it's in, it's instantaneous. If, if you want to think about it, um, energy is the amount of gasoline in your tank and uh, power is the pickup of your of your roadster, right? Like how quickly it throws you back into the seat. That's the difference between both. Now, I want to, when, when you and I were talking at the, um, at the reunion and, and we were talking about the power systems that you put in and the power system that I have, we were throwing on these numbers of like, my, it's 576 kilowatt hours storage and it maxes out at 600 watts power. Mm. So like I have all this popcorn in my cupboard because I can't run my microwave. <laughs> Yes, you can. It's about 1,500 to 2,000 watts, yes. Yeah, so I, I have the power to – I mean, I have the energy to do it absolutely in, in this battery, but not the power. I can't – Yes. And if I connect it, then it says overload. Yes. And uh, and then my blender, the uh, the company – now, I'm going to do this. <laughs> EcoFlow is the battery maker that I use, mm-hmm. which I bought used off of Craigslist. But then they saw I was getting all this news coverage. So they sent me the, the second-generation battery, which is bigger and delivers more power and holds more energy – but the blender broke it. I mean, they said they that it was like a pre-release one, so it was maybe not the production model. Mm-hmm. But the blender like shoots up and down. It's not steady. Like the pressure cooker yes. works. Actually, the pressure cooker is funny because it really wants something like 1,500 watts. But it doesn't get 1,500 watts. But unlike the microwave, it just heats slower. It still works just fine. I mean, the mm-hmm. the computer doesn't need that energy yeah. or power power or energy. It's just the heat, but the heat just accumulates. Yeah. But and I do want to jump into those numbers a bit and re and rehash a couple of those conversations so that people can hear. But I want people to hear. I have a PhD in physics, and before I bought this stuff, I didn't. I, like I knew in principle the difference between energy and power, but the numbers meant nothing to me, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what worked and what didn't work. Until I did hands-on, and there's no substitute for hands-on. And I think maybe you make systems that are no-brainer so that people can just buy something that's more power and more energy than they would need, and so therefore it works. But I think for a lot of us, like we've gotten it really easy. Everything you plug in works. The biggest thing is that every now and then there's like a brownout because there's a big uh, heat wave. Yeah. But mostly, we don't have to know or care about these things. But it's not easy. There is a bit of fun to it, and but if people are listening to this and not getting the numbers, yeah, it, that, don't feel bad. Like it's no, I, I certainly didn't. No, don't feel bad. And uh, you know, although I came out of energy and like yourself have a PhD, I had to also get more customs nowadays. If you show me entire equipment list in the house, I can pretty much tell how much how many watts a kilowatt each particular item has. But you know, just. To, on a quick tangent, my kids are in middle and elementary school. I sometimes wonder if we should have a class of that just a semester long, like how much is something, right? Like put a ton, a block down that's a ton metric and let the kids try to move it. Okay, then they know what a ton is, right? 
let them fill up a cubic meter. I'm a metric apologist. I want a cubic meter of water to see, which happens to be about a ton, but to see, you know, how, how much is that, right? Or, or learn to walk 10 miles with a backpack to see, oh, now I'm uh, imperial, but anyway, walk 10 miles to see how far is that, right? Because most of us don't have that visceral, intuitive understanding how strong something is. People that fish usually know what, you know, a 20 pound line holds, right? They know how strong a 20 pound line is. Do you know if you're not a fisher how, how much a 20 pound line holds? Probably not. You have no intuition for it. So yes, that's really important. And for most of our customers, what happens is what happened to you. Uh, initially, they go into this, although this has changed dramatically already, um, thinking, oh, I can get by with this little, little, you know, little solar generator. And then I find out that, <laughs> um, you know, they can, after uh, they, uh, and not to put anyone down, but uh, if you have a Tesla Powerwall and you try to microwave and run a, a water kettle at the same time and mistakenly turn on your hairdryer, uh, you'd be overloading the Powerwall already. Uh, and that seems like a morning routine, right? You put some something in the microwave, you run the kettle for your for your tea, and you want to get your you know your beautiful hair blown straight, and boom, you're overloading the Powerwall uh, because it has like you know some, some five kilowatt of sustained power, maybe again. Not fair to power wall, but I'm right on the money, more or less. Um, but now I think you're living in a house that's air conditioned and you have a car outside that you want to charge because you want to go to work. Uh, you have an induction stove now, uh, you know, that something is cooking and you have three or four kits, uh, you know, and that, and now suddenly, uh, the heat pump turns back on. There's an inrush current. That's the whole different level of discussion, what that is and time scales of that. And, you know, you're overloading even a 15 or 20 kilowatt system. So uh, that is exactly why the utility gives you this awesome amount of power. Uh, on, on Typically, that's roughly a 48 kilowatt for most people. And you take it for granted, but it's extremely expensive to provide that power. And for anyone, just as a side and very important notice, how expensive it is, is to recognize that your average power in your home is only one-tenth of what I call sustained power, something you can measure over minutes. It's even a smaller fraction of instantaneous power, which you know is in the millisecond range, which these utility breakers still accommodate. So simply put and look it up in Wikipedia, search the word distribution networks, and you'll see stated that a distribution network in your neighborhood is 10 times bigger and needs to be for average power. And that means on balance, everything is 10 times bigger than it needs to be. Basically, you have a 10 times higher price then what amount of energy that needs to flow through it over time. And that is the crux, the problem, and where we attacking the existing established system. That's where we save and make money, is arbitraging basically against that incredibly high cost of delivering power as compared to delivering energy, which would be only one-tenth of that amount, amount which you would then buffer in a battery and then deliver on-site to your appliances. Is it fair to say that the so a power system that delivers that's built ten times bigger than it needs to be for most of the time, except every now and then it needs to be that? Yeah, I'm thinking that these are huge costs. I mean, then I mean because I'm usually thinking about peaker plants and and nuclear. That even if we could use renewables, I, I don't like to use the word renewable because I don't think solar and wind are renewable. But even if we did have them, we'd still need these backup things which are running all the time. So I'm thinking that there's huge amounts of pollution costs. And am I right that it's a big national security risk to have all these points of failure all over the place? Oh, of course. I mean, you know, 
look at Ukraine um, and not be political. Any just looking at the facts, you know, there's they're putting you know, you know standing around the, the nuclear power plant for it to not go down. You know, the dam breaches. Not only does it flood uh, the land, it probably also had hydro generation. A single large um, generators are you know very vulnerable to being taken out. Um, in Fukushima, uh, that power plant failed during the tsunami. There was a massive blackout in the entire part of Japan. Um, now, we don't want to overstate this because over generations and over decades, these power plants have done what they did pretty reliably, even though they're central power plants. But as climate extremes lower the level of water and rivers to the point that they cannot run the single point generator, it starts to fail. And we've seen this in in many markets, uh, especially when the heat goes up, it's not just the demand goes up, cooling water goes down. Efficiency of turbines and steam uh, turbines, gas and steam drops off dramatically. Uh, so they produce less power for an installed base. And then, of course, the lines sag and all of this. So uh, this is not just to throw the entire power system under the bus, just like the landline was just fine. I had great calls with my friends making appointments to go soccer playing on a landline in the 70s, 80s. That wasn't the problem. The problem was for the landline, there was something much better and something much cheaper uh, on the horizon, which ended up being the mobile phone, which is actually a really, really good analogy here uh, for this. And which I refer to the last line, and people always talk about the cell phone, you know, being the last line and, and so forth. The cell phone actually hasn't replaced landlines at all. As a matter of fact, we have more landlines and more data traffic on landlines than ever before because you, your your mobile phone only goes a mile to a cell phone tower and from there it goes underground into fiber optics and runs all the way across the country, switch back and forth and comes back out. Right now, Josh, talk to you somewhere in, in New York City and, and beams over to your house. It's a complete landline. It, but the last mile disconnecting that made all the difference. And so um, with power or with you know, power systems, it's very similar. We're not going to get rid of the grid. Uh, the grid is very valuable. But, you know, we want to transform it into an energy, a way of moving energy around. And what's the last line for this entire in in industry? It's power. You want to move the generation and of power, not energy. This is a little confusing because we always think of power generators, sources that make energy ultimately, like a turbine or hydro plant. But no, the source of power needs to be local. And that is what these batteries do. And now we put in the, you know, sorry, uh, the last word, the 48 kilowatts inside the house. And it only needs to be fed by four and a half uh, kilowatt. If we have to deliver all the energy to the system, and if like half the energy comes from the roof, then, you know, that house suddenly only needs a four kilowatt connection and still delivers 48 kilowatts of power to all the appliances. So I misunderstood, the, or I miss, I, I only got a piece of this because I thought you were, I was about to ask, do you, are you, do you think of yourself as helping the consumer, helping the grid or both? And I, I, I think now that you're, you found a hole in a system that was a problem for everyone. Yes. See, that's, that's the thing about this, you know, the, the line. If you go down, the further you go, the more virtuous becomes. And that's really, you know, what I take credit for with you, Solar and the power block and the vision I have for the energy industry. It wasn't like me against them. It was like, there's a there's a bad way of doing it, and there's a better way of doing it, and everyone benefits. The consumer benefits from having more reliable power, from being able to use solar directly on the roof, 
without sending off to the grid and being subject to regulatory constraints or transmission constraints or local uh, transformer constraints, utilities will benefit because, you know, we haven't gotten the message to them yet, but I think it will eventually get there. We talked about percolation of ideas. When you have a power outage and you have these people at the end of a power line, like a cluster of 10, 15 homes, which often are rural, often include low-income families, but also include wealthy people that live to li- like to live in the countryside, I have to have a fleet of trucks sitting somewhere in a, in, a, in, a, in a park, right? Hundreds of hundreds of utility trucks ready to go, the staff ready to run, because if you don't restore power in, within 24, 48 hours, boy, people will be unhappy. Pitchforks come out and the Public Utilities Commission will ding my my guaranteed return. But what if I say like, well, wait a minute, let me give those cluster of homes distributed power block systems owned by PG&E or the local utilities, Southern Power, whatever they're called. And, you know, power goes out to them, energy goes out to them. Basically, the, the utility power supply fails to them. No big deal. We monitor all these batteries. We find out, oh gosh, these guys have 48 hours of storage left. You know, as a matter of fact, they're all kind of lying low because they know there was a storm. We can go there in three days and work on that power line. I don't need those trucks. I don't need those crews. I can cut my crews, crews down by a significant amount of, of, of people and capital investment. It's a better product. It is, you know, a better solution and it's lower cost. That's simple. And that's why it will win. That's why everything is moving in that direction. Well, now we were chatting before starting to record and now we're running out of time. So we have to, we're going to have to pick up here next time because I wanted, I, I thought we were going to get into the personal leadership stuff earlier. And, but this is just to me, just as interesting. And I mean, totally different area. But uh, can we pick up here next time? Yeah, I'm happy to do this. And, you know, I'm looking at the clock here in California and it moves the same speed as in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and I need to uh, get to my next task. Yeah, I'm very happy to continue. And we have this recording to know where we left off, um, like personal conversation we can remember. And we're happy to speak with you again, Josh. It was so great to see you at the reunion. Thanks for the leadership that you provide uh, for your podcast. And I'm happy to reconvene and talk more about other, other topics we couldn't cover here. Okay, great. Arnold Leitner, thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.